This week's episode of the Screenwriter's Rant Room is brought to you by avgearguy.com. If you have any photos or documents that you need to scan or videotapes or audio tapes or film rolls that you need to import into your computer, check out avgearguy.com. If you mention the name of this podcast, when you order, you'll get 5% off and a portion of your order will go to help support the rant room. All these formats degrade over time and are sitting ducks in the case of fire or theft. Why not convert it all to digital? All of your memories could be stored safely on the cloud or on a hard drive that fits in your pocket. AVGearGuy.com has over 30 years of experience with all kinds of media, digital and analog, and they can accept orders from anywhere in the United States. Don't forget to mention the Screenwriter's Rant Room and get 5% off your order. For more details, visit their website at avgearguy.com. I'ma say what I feel And I promise to keep it real Welcome to the Rant Room y'all it's your boy hilliard guest and you guys are listening to the screenwriters rant room but we keep it real we keep it opinionated we keep it what everybody it is what it is you'll learn about that in a minute brian um <laughs> on this show we discuss entertainment tv film music culture but our focus is always screenwriting stories craft and shit like that you hear her voice lisa bolakaj is in the house what's up lisa lisa cult jam so let me just let you know right now that since we are now living in Black Mirror season six in real time, all of us together. Right. You know, I was waiting for season six, didn't realize we were all going to be participating in it. This is like the live version of it. So the last week, what I've been doing is I've been looking for really old, like classic, fantastical films that I love from Poland and Russia. And so thank God, listen. Somebody, God bless them. I won't say their name on here because they may take it off of YouTube, but somebody put a really great version of Amphibian Man from 1962, the full color version full with color subtitles, version. with uh-huh. subtitles on YouTube. I am so excited because I'm having a hard time finding that in DVD. I used to rent it from Cinefile in Santa Monica years ago. And then when everything went to streaming, I can't really find it. I think someone stole a copy from Cinephile. So I found that. And right now, I'm also looking for one of my other favorite Russian films, uh, the Saragossa Manuscript. Mm. And I was trying to find, I found one on Amazon, but it's like Blu-ray. I don't have Blu-ray. So it's kind of kind of fi- trying to find some copies of like a lot of the Eastern European classic fantastical films that I love. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to fill my joy. Brian, I'm trying to fill my joy with, with uh, comfort media. I guess you could say, <laughs> yes. you know, 
So, but looking for that stuff and then kind of revisiting a lot of Italian horror, you know, the, the Italian giallo stuff that I love. And I was talking to my mom a few minutes ago before we got started. And I said, mom, do you remember the first film? Because my mother's responsible for Brian for all of my horror. And she is such a <laughs> denier. Parents are such deniers. Mm-hmm. And I twist her. I said, mom, do you remember the very first horror movie you took me to when I was two that I actually remember at the drive-in? She goes, I don't know. I thought we were taking to Disney. And I said, no, it was children shouldn't play with dead things. And wow. she sat there. She sat there and said, I didn't take you to go see that. I'm like, who, who was driving the 65 Chevy with me in the back seat? With me in the back seat, if it wasn't you taking me. She goes, oh, yeah, I did take you to go see that. All right, well, what, what can I say? So, Brian, I just want to say this to you. Lisa is the one I was telling you you should have on, you should interview also for the film. Um, what, were you going to say something, Chris? I got to run out the door for a second. So uh, the door, okay, I'll be back and say... Quick question, though. Brian, sorry to cut you off before I lose my thought, uh, Hilliard. Brian, were you at the, the Horror Noir premiere last year? Oh, at the yeah, Egyptian? absolutely. So, so you saw me already. I was the one who did the Q&A at the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You did a great yeah. job. I love that movie. I love Tanana Do. I think that movie was so underrated just as a documentary that's educating people who don't know about black cinema because there was so much stuff in there that I didn't know just historically it had nothing to do with horror it just had to do with people fighting their way into a system and achieving greatness right Mm -hmm. and that's why I'm really excited about the the queer um, horror documentary because I think it's just another great companion piece that just adds adds to the narrative of some things. So anyway, go ahead, Hillary. We'll jump into that a little bit more, Brian, but I want to make sure I don't forget to say. But yeah, Brian, so I was just saying, Lisa's the one that I wanted you also to talk to. She's a straight female, but her perspective, and you see she's an ultimate horror cinephile, you'd be crazy not to have her crazy butt on the show. Well, that's funny, because me, because you put, we can put ally in the lower third. Right, right, right. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> queer, queer adjacent. You know, because well, Tanana Reeve is like, you know, one of my good friends, you know, as a writer. And so, like, literally when she was doing the doc, I know, you know, everything is all secret. I know with the queer cinema, but the horror cinema, I know everything is all hush hush and, you know, people trying to get it together and do that kind of stuff. But um, it was funny because when she she had talked about, we had talked about, oh, yeah, I said they're doing the queer horror cinema. And she's like, yeah, there's just so many great stuff about it. And then I thought, well, let me just, you know, see some stuff that's going on. And I thought, oh, I wonder who they're going to have in it talking about it. And then I saw um, recently, I saw you on the Comic-Con panel on uh, the, yes, and, and you were talking about it. And when you started talking, I realized you and I have some a similar background in terms of, our Uh-oh. home lives right. and mm-hmm. why we kind of uh, gravitated toward horror. Right. And I, I saw I saw another uh, uh, panel thing, uh, interview you did. I think it was back in April. I, forgive me, I can't remember the gentleman's name. But literally, I was watching it, and I got the hairs on my arms raised up. And I thought, oh, my God, I feel like those of us who come from marginalized groups who gravitate towards horror, we all seem to have a similar background in terms of a lot of stuff on it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of background. But anyway, go ahead, Hillary. Keep on. Anyway. So anyway, so so Brian, she's somebody I definitely want you to talk to for the for the Queer for Fear project I you're gonna work it. on. I would love um, it. anyway, and then we got my man Chris Derrick in the house, writer, director, 
Mr. Cinephile himself. <laughs> Brian, he is the one you can mention any weird, strange movie from 1936 and he's definitely saw it, knows who stars and knows who directed it. You know, it's great. I know a lot. I know a lot. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, but it's not too much. It's not too much. Okay. Okay. So don't try to stump me. I don't know. Some of us would say too much. I'm just saying, don't try to, because I'm not a, because I'm, I'm, I, I mean, I could be stumped. I would just say that. But it's time to time. Oh time to time. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, you know, All right. Um, you know, I'm actually doing well. I'm, you know, speaking of old Italian films, I'm trying to get this Dario Argento film called The, the Bird of the Crystal Plumage. Yes! Have you heard of that or not? Yes! Um, What's that one yes. about? Yeah. I have no idea, but, you know, but but my brother Alex... <laughs> oh, then I'm not, then I'm, like, then know, I'm not going to say anything. This, uh, yeah. He yeah. shot this shorts we were doing, and he's been watching... Uh, he just has this mad kick for Suspiria. He's, like, always watching it. Um, and uh, and he was like, can you get this movie, The Bird of the Crystal Plumage? I was like, I'm going to see if I can get it. I'm, but, but, but he's missing it because um, he thinks, and I don't have it in front of me, but it's um, um, Vittorio Storaro's first movie, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the cinematographer. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very curious to see, because uh, he's like one of my favorite cinematographers. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to track it down. I'm trying to track it down. Um, anything else new for me, like movie-wise? Uh, n- n- no, I'm I'm so I still got two episodes hmm. left on the Kingdom, that the, oh, okay, that, Kore- that Korean. Yeah. Ha- Have you been into this one, Brian? No, no. Oh, Dude. Okay, yeah, so, watch it. so it's it's, a, it's on Netflix. Thank it's you. a Korean period zombie. Show. Yeah, I've seen the trailer, but I haven't yeah. seen it. It looked so amazing. Good. It's, oh, it's it. amazing. It's watch it's it. like it's everything that you kind of it's kind of like Game of Thrones distilled down. You know, like like I can't. Like, Kind of like a white, like a white wine, like reduction sauce, like a <laughs> white <laughs> wine. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. It's, the acting is so good. The storytelling is so good. It feels more like a movie than a TV show in terms of like right. its scope. And even though Game of Thrones had that kind, of, you know, it's 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 worth watching. It's so yeah. good. The acting yeah. is amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. for sure. So, yeah. um, sure. that's it. Well, thanks, Chris. How's it so, if you guys are grown, let's go ahead and get to the show. So today we got an icon. Today we got an icon on the show, my big bro, <laughs> Brian Fuller. Everybody, writer, creator, producer. What's happening, Brian? How you doing, my man? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me here. It's uh, like the the. I think we're all kind of adjusting to the systemic state of the world, and it's fascinating. Uh, just being creatives during this time and and storytellers during this time because there's so much. I mean, the world's literally on fire in in so many ways, and you know, it does feel different than it has before. But it's it's fascinating to talk to other creatives now because, like for me personally, I vacillate between like, oh my gosh, this is really cool to like, nothing matters, the world's on fire. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> find that balance for my own sanity and, you know, depression and anxiety and all of yeah. those things when you realize, oh, there's a systemic depression that everybody is, is experiencing mm-hmm. on top of their own personal depressions, whatever those may be. So it is a fascinating time to think about storytelling and the power of storytelling and, and what we can do as storytellers to help people feel seen. Mm. 
I like how that's you put that. Really, that's an interesting point because I, I feel like there's so much going on now where people are, you know, who, who have not had a chance to express their voice and express their story. They're now getting a spotlight because, you know, I think we're, I think we're tired of these old narratives that, that have been constantly forced down our throats. And we're constantly like seeing like the worst aspects of that old narrative with that fool in the White House, you know. So it's, <laughs> it's so it's just kind of like you know, can we see something else, something new that is going to show us, you know? Uh, it, there's just some there's like to me there's like some solace we can find in new voices and in new just just people and experiences right now that we're not for sure we just we haven't seen and we just we want, i mean that's the stuff that, that i'm gravitating to now that i want to see more of i'm like just mm -hmm. tell me something that's like exciting and it's exciting because mm -hmm. i haven't seen it ever you know? right well wait, you said something that's very interesting to me in terms of the saturation of a point of view and it's almost like you know we're we we had to be force-fed a, a diet that consisted almost entirely of bullshit in order for us to go like, oh, I don't like bullshit and I'm tasting bullshit. <laughs> I had a salad and I tasted bullshit in my salad. So yeah. you know, almost yeah. like we had to have this assault on our, our taste buds yes. in order for us to say like, I don't want to taste it anymore in anything. I don't want like mm -hmm. a drop of it in my tea. I don't want to mm -hmm. drop it in my, my mushroom omelet. I don't want to mm -hmm. drop it of it anywhere because I feel like almost a, a in a universal uh, evolutionary sort of way that whatever has conspired for us to experience this undiluted time for us to wake up to the taste of it and mm -hmm. say like let's not put that taste in anything we don't need to salt anything with that shitty salt right right Right. right, sure, right. sure. Wow. Okay, that was bars right there. You weren't supposed to come out the out the box just giving us game. It's the work into the art. It's supposed to work out, you know. <laughs> he coming all out just waking up this morning. Uh, I've had my. Uh huh. You must have got something last night. I see what you did. I see what you did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, Brian, let's go back. Tell everybody where you're from and how you got into the game in the first place. Like, were you always uh, a cinephile, horrified, horror type of guy? Like, where did that all come from? Uh, yeah, I think my my taste for, like, I was always into movies. And I think medicinally, given, uh, uh, you know, background that, like, Lisa and I were, were sort of talking about earlier, um, one of the things I think is so fascinating about being a fan or a cinephile or being somebody who pours their energy into something else, some outside mm -hmm. uh, element is that there is a medicinal quality to all of it. And we look for places to look safe or, or feel safe. And I think right. movies, television, storytelling is a way for us to escape whatever reality and feel safer in a context that is an illusion, but it's an illusion that's reframing how we think about things. So I feel like I ran to movies, I ran to television shows, I ran to um, a lot of this stuff 
because I was escaping an environment that was hostile and unsafe and and unfriendly and really um, violent and ignorant. So I found peace and intelligence in storytelling, even though the storytelling may be about violent, ignorant monsters, but at least there was a context for me to go like, oh, that person feels in danger, so I relate to that person. I relate to that final girl or, or what have you because they're in a dangerous situation. So I think the the passion that I felt for it was medicinal uh, initially, and then I just got into, like, it took me a long time before I realized the parallels of The Shining with my own childhood in terms of like abuse and literally running for your life from listen, from listen, preach, preach. Yes. Like, you know, I have the, the the poster in my office as a reminder of like I'm a crazy writer, and also don't interrupt <laughs> me when I'm reading, even if you have a sandwich. Yeah. There's some, I posted on Facebook for some Father's Day, like a picture of Danny Torrance and Jack Torrance on the bed. And I was like, happy Father's Day. And this is like, you know, a decade ago. And somebody was like, uh, so is that you and your dad? And I was like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> holy shit. Like I had Listen. Yeah. Listen. No, when I saw The Shining, I'm, I got, I'm going to look around because, you know, I'm in my mama's house, so she might hear me. But no, when we saw it, I saw it. No, I saw it at the drive-in. And, you know, when you come from a family, it has to deal with, you know, a stepdad or a father figure that's abusive. Right. And you are a child watching a movie in a drive-in with that person. And you see pretty much your life played out on a film. There are certain context clues that you try to look for in terms of survival things or things that try to help you cope, coping mechanisms. So even when I read the Stephen King novel and then I saw, and I read really young, like my, my stepdad really got me reading. He was the, the person that got me into Stephen King, um, introduced me to a lot of my horrors. And my mom did too, but he was the one that gave me the adult books. Like my first adult book uh, was Jaws and yes. I was eight. I was eight years old. And then when I read that thick book and then he took me to the movies and then after that, he was like, oh, now you're ready for Stephen King. Here, let me give you Carrie and then we're going to go see the movie. Oh, here's Shining. Meanwhile, I'm like 10 or 11. And then when I'm watching The Shining and, you know, Kubrick is one of my favorite people. There is like this kind of out of body experience where you're watching the film, you're recognizing certain things that have happened to you and it just heightened the horror even oh, more yeah, so. Sure. So it's like when I saw The Shining in the back of your house, I'm like, oh, shit, here's somebody who knows. Here's right. somebody who understands. <laughs> I have I have a kindred spirit here, someone who understands. So, yeah. <laughs> well, 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 you know, I mean, it's. Not talking about horror film, but it is kind of a horror film, and some of his work is maybe like psychological horror to a degree, which um, is even worse sometimes. Oh yeah. my god! Well, yeah, yeah. But, but but not 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 Kubrick, but it's one of the you know there's a German filmmaker named um, Rainer Fassbender. Oh yeah, it, you know, yeah. and his films are like I mean I was talking to someone about them the other day. She's like, well, is that stuff that you like? I was like, I don't know if I necessarily like it. But I recognize a lot of the world we live in, like in his mm. movies, the tragedy that you don't see in others, you don't see in other films, you know? There's a strange authenticity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's mm-hmm. all these really heightened experiences and crazy stuff, but, but it's one of the things that I feel that, I mean, it's, some, it's, it's, it's a given in, 
that when you're writing, you're trying to make the characters and everything uh, uh, like uh, people can identify with them. Mm-hmm. But it's different when you see kind of like behavior or circumstances that seem so, um, you know, like it's stuff that's hidden in a sense. But it's being it's but it's being presented on the screen in a way that it's like I know that that right, that situation right. I've seen it or I when, lived it when, and well, yeah. and it's and it makes you feel very um, uh, like you said Lisa there's these weird goosebumps like I was telling you know I wrote this article Brian the other day that uh, came out on about about my experiences with the police traumatic yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you Brian it's amazing it's amazing and, yeah. and uh, um. And I, I was there's a moment when I was talking about how that scene in Get Out, you mm-hmm. know, like I was like, hey, you know, the movie Get Out was really fascinating. And I'm like, it's not all the shit that everyone talks about. It's that one scene where the mm. cops, the cop was like pulls them over because she's the white girl. She's driving. She's speeding. He's the black guy getting interrogated, although he's just a passenger. And I was <laughs> like, that seems so wild to me because. I have the same name as that character, and that thing happened to me. And the mm-hmm. white girl I was with had the same name yeah. too. And I was like, yeah. "This is just like it was <laughs> yes. like it, it's, it's when, too much, it's when, you know? it's, it's when the subtext when the when the subtext becomes text. That's when it's like, all right, this movie is doing uh, too much. It's doing yeah. too much. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the universe yeah. is like, I see you. Yes. Like, yeah. So personal yeah. and intimate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. it's wild. Yeah. It's just mm-hmm. it's just wild. But you know, I mean. I don't know, like, you talk about The Shining, but Shining is one of the movies that, uh, I mean, the thing I love about Kubrick's work, but The Shining in particular, is it's like, you know, each viewing gives you something new. Yes. It's really a strange thing mm. for a filmmaker to consistently do that, but he does that so well in The Shining, because when you watch it, like, I watched it when I was a kid, I was like, okay, there's some things about this that are fucked up and scary as a kid, <laughs> but then as I get a little older, I was like, there's shit about this that reminded me of people that I know. It's just, yeah. So <laughs> you live life by the yeah, time. You live li- yeah, you live life and, and, and you go back and you want to watch it again because you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. In my memory, I knew something and you and I, I'm like, you're kind of like conflating memory from real life with the memory in the movie. Yeah. And you just kind of watch the movie again to kind of, like you said, Brian Irwin, like to kind of feel safe because you know yeah. what's happening in a movie yeah. So at, at any time I can walk away, turn it off, and, and then I'm not, you know, and, and I'm out of it. But, right. but it's something that, but that experience, I can control the 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 acceptance of it. Whereas in real life, you can't. It's just happening to you. You, you know, can't. You know, what is, what is, you know, so. What's funny is like right before I saw The Shining, like a few years before then, I actually met Scott Mancruthers at uh, Bilbo Park. Brian, I'm from San Diego, <laughs> so. So when I was like in fourth grade, I went to, they had this program where they would take kids to like, you would go to Old Town and learn about Old Town history. And then in fifth grade, you would go do something else with history. But they were filming, I want to say it's, I can't remember what movie Scatman Crother was. I, I don't know if it was like, oh God, what movie was that they were filming? It was a movie they were filming in San Diego. And my little fourth grade class is walking through. And he saw a bunch of little black kids walking. So he ran over and he sang Hong Kong Fui to us because that was one of our favorite cartoons back in the day because he voiced Hong Kong Fui. And it was funny to see that kind face like, oh, my God, this is Catman Crothers. I saw him on, you know, you see him on TV everywhere. We knew he was a singer. We'd see him on Sanford and Son, you know, we just everywhere. But then a few years later to see him in The Shining, that was a total mindfuck. Because <laughs> it was like, oh, he was so kind. Of course, when you're a kid, you believe everything. 
everything. So I really thought he was dead in The Shining. I was like, he was such a nice man. Mom said, no, that's called acting. It's called acting. He's not really dead. So, Brian, let me ask you. So you were, you were starting to say about, like, how you, uh, like, your, your surroundings you come from sometimes make you become the person you are in some ways. Like, the things that you live with, all the violence and the whatever, made you almost numb to it. But it also made you fascinated in, a, in a some way. How did that switch over to you actually writing? Did you start writing young? Like, what what happened for you? Um, you know, I think one of the things that got me excited about just cinema, like, I was already curious about it and curious about the transportive aspects of storytelling and, like, oh, I'll, I'll, I would rather align my brain with that reality than the one that I'm currently in. And the alien photo novel, I don't know if you had that. There was... Oh, yeah was a Bible for me because Mm -hmm. it not only taught me about production design and cinematography and those types of things. It, it really was this fascinating tool that kind of separated the elements of filmmaking, uh, you know, into the text, into the image, into the, the thematics very distinctively because I could see as a kid that that monster's head looked like a big dick. That's a, that's a so dick. Brian, we yes. have some common. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, so. Yeah. so messy. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, Lisa's the one who I thinks the creature from the Black Lagoon is sexy. So first no, of all. I, listen, listen. I think the creature and the predator. And, listen. Don't you. Listen. 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 That was my man. And I think that's why I like Amphibian Man. Because it's like, yeah, that kind of weird otherworldly and also connecting to the other anyway. And when you're talking about seminal marginalized groups and, you know, even if you're talking about queer characters, you know, you're, that kind of otherness, that kind of, you, you gravitate toward that. So, yeah, I do find things that are otherworldly attractive in that way. But that's because of Clive Barker. So you have Clive Barker right. to blame for that because he allowed me to embrace my kink tendencies in a way that that was safe. And then when I met him a couple of times, I'm like, you are my people. God bless you. Because that kind of subversive stuff and horror is about sexuality too. A lot of people don't want to talk about that kind of stuff, but it's like, that's, that's what it is. And we'll get into that later, Brian, when you talk about Hannibal. (laughs) Well, well, I mean, I think just hitting on the, going back to creature. Yes. there's something so fascinating about dream interpretation and anything that has to do with water and dream interpretation is sexuality. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. It's, it is telling us, you know, psychologically that sexuality is fluid and sexuality mm-hmm. is this thing that, that we have to immerse ourselves in to fully appreciate that you go into a certain mind state with sexuality that is about leaving your intellectual or your societal self behind, mm-hmm. going to something that is primal and connective. And even though it is about the physical, you, the, you do leave your body. Mm-hmm. You do 
go to a place where the physical is just a trigger to a, a mental state. So the creature being a sexy beast, as it were, <laughs> makes total sense to me. A, you see him moving through the water so elegantly and it's sexy. Right, and, right. you know, the ribbing of all of the scales makes him Come look on. like he's got like, you know, an eight pack. He's got a, but- yes! <laughs> he's got, he's got a 12 pack. That's a 12 exactly. pack. Like there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. He's got a nine pack. A nine nine pack. One okay. Is like okay. His uh, chakra down there. Yes. Um, so I totally get that. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, what was the question? I was just asking, I was trying to get how you how you became a writer and how you became who you are now. And actually, well, so I was just starting from the beginning and working my way up. So with Alien, the reason Alien was such a an important. Um, uh, film for me, not only just seeing the photo novel when I was nine years old and being obsessed with it, but when I went to college, I was studying to be a psychiatrist. And so everything that I wrote in terms of diagnoses or extrapolations of mental conditions were through the prism of of characters in horror movies, whether they there were vampirism or the monster mania or the... I was like aware of my outsider status being more in line with the monsters and the protagonists and my instructor was like you you shouldn't be studying to be a psychiatrist you should go to film school and the next time i had a, a student teacher meeting i went into his office and he had film school pamphlets all laid on his desk oh, and he- okay. You, you have to get out of here. Like, this is a community college. This isn't the place for you. You have to go to a proper film school. So it was really someone seeing in me that passion and me thinking like, oh, other people do that. Other people mm-hmm. write stories. Other people, uh, you know, make those stories. And it wasn't something that was accessible for just anybody. In my mind, I was like, it's something that other people get to do that aren't me. And, you know, my uh, socioeconomic status felt like there were so many barriers. And it took somebody to say, no, actually, it can be you. It, you just have to apply to the school and go do it. And I think the the daunting thing for a lot of storytellers who haven't yet stepped into their storytelling power is the false perception of other people get to do this, not me. And mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest wall that we can break down as people who have climbed or are climbing the wall. Like, I, I've never felt... Uh, any sense of security in my career. It's, it always feels like every job is something that you have to fight for. Every script is something that you have to fight for. Every story, every character. So there's never been any kind of like resting on laurels because mm-hmm. I know that there's a lot of people who want to do what, what we all do and they are probably better at it because they've learned things that that where my learning may have either stopped or atrophied or, you know, what have you, they're still learning and they're still crafting. And that's the nature of storytelling because we get to eat this meal, digest it, poop it out. Somebody goes, Oh my God, that poop is amazing. Eats that mm-hmm. meal, digest it, makes even better. Poop. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hey, Brian, It's funny. I, I love how you said um, a moment ago 
um, you were talking about like as if, you know, some people may be better at you or, or, or what I hear in all that is perception. Right. So the perception that we have in this industry is everybody, and Chris and I and Lisa talk about this a lot, because <clears throat> until we had to, we adjusted our perception of ourselves, our careers finally took off. Right. You know, we had to go, wait a minute, people are seeing us this way. We have to let them know it's okay to see me that way, but here's who I am. Right. You know, and so I, what, I, what I was hearing from you is, I mean, you, you're somebody who's had a very, you know, wonderful, long career. But what I hear is the bumps in the way, why, because I love how you said I've never been comfortable even when I'm at the top in my, even in my game. Because from the outside, we think you haven't made. We think, wow, look, he's running the show. He created the show. He developed the show, whatever it is. But we don't realize the bullshit that goes on, the politics, yeah, whatever, things, you know. Because if, if anybody was just to go on IMDb and just type in Brian Fuller's name, like you would see Pushing Daisy, Heroes, you know, you would see all these great shows and you'd be like, oh, yeah, awesome. But it's almost like, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's just something innate in creatives where you have that imposter syndrome. But right. even when things are going well, I don't know if it's that childlike background for a lot of us who, you know, especially those of us who do speculative things, things that have to do with sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, where that imposter syndrome seems to be a little bit stronger even when things are going well. And I don't know how a lot of us get past it because it seems like every person, you know, especially doing this podcast for a long time, Hilliard, um, even people we've had come on here that we think, oh my God, you see their resume, their resume. Right. and they're just like, child, I'm still trying to figure it out as I go. And you're yes. just like, on the one hand, it's like relief, like, okay, even when you get to just still work and things that you got to work on. But at the same time, I just feel like that we kind of hold ourselves back in that imposter syndrome. I don't know. It's just. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So to me, two things. One that I just found interesting what you're saying is that like, I'm not, I think it's not necessarily solely imposter syndrome. I think it's the fact that when you're creating stuff, there's always something that is a little nebulous in your head that mm -hmm. you're really passionate about and you don't know how to tackle that one thing. Yeah. And, and trying to solve that puzzle is what is kind of driving you. It doesn't matter where you are and that's always mm -hmm. changing depending on your success or where you are or what's been told mm -hmm. no to you and I gotta, you gotta pivot. But 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 that new thing in your head is like I gotta do that. I mm -hmm. really want to do that. And then the more you grow and do things, what that is becomes like more complicated. And it's a brass ring that keeps getting larger but farther away. <laughs> and it's got more like filigree and shit like that. And you're like, God damn it! Like like how do I like I like like I can't put all that together. But that and that's where you you know and that's where your mind is. What you're doing now, the because you know because you develop something and it goes. It's a whole different mindset to keep that going than when you're like, and when your mind is creating raw, fresh. It's, when you're developing it, you're, mm -hmm. like, you're somewhere stuck. Like, how do I get there? Like, like, right. like, like, you're trying to put the, out the the lightning in the bottle because you know it's possible to do that, but you're just like, God damn it, that seems harder now because I want two lightning strikes now as opposed to one, or maybe I want three now, and that's I, I to me, like, that's where I get stuck a lot and I feel like I'm not not where I want to be or I'm not doing what I want to do because there's these other elements that are just not quite there and that always I mean sets a fear up for me and and I feel like I'm not I'm, I'm not happy about mm. it, it, yeah. the success I do get it's like ah don't talk to me about that <laughs> don't talk to me there's something else there's something else. why are you doing this 
Yeah. 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 I certainly wonder if I'm even wet wired for happiness because there's like it it seems like it is the carrot on a stick that is tied to my head and no matter how far or fast i chase it it's still designed by my mental faculties to Mm. be just without reach and Mm. i don't know how much of that is my own kind of perception because like you said everything is objective so we we have no measurement to to qualify or quantify these new ideas that we we're attracted to but we don't quite understand because we're Mm. trying to focus through their brightness or what have you to see the shape that is is illuminating Mm. but is it we are chasing ghosts in in many ways and nothing is real i think that's the that's the sweet spot where we are in danger of other people bringing us down and accessing our doubt in a way that is not good for us. Mm-hmm. And so uh, dangerous for us accessing our own doubt and doubling down and then letting voices from our childhood or a bad trip, like poke up mm-hmm. and say like, no, you really are. You really are talent. Mm-hmm. And then, like, oh my God, am I? Or mm-hmm. it's a good idea, but you like, there's a better one around the corner, and you haven't found it. Right. <laughs> all of that is this. Right. You know, I, I I I try to look at it almost like evolutionary in terms of what is that? What are those notions trying to? to tell me because they keep on coming up in my, my personal criticisms of myself, what, like, what am I supposed to learn from them? How am I supposed to silence them or how am I supposed to amplify them in order to stand on top of them? Mm-hmm. And it's all like, it, like it boils down to, we're all just guessing mm-hmm. and we're trying to like, go like, Oh, I think that works. And it's interesting to me, but I mean, I write scenes where I'm like, I'm super excited about it. Then I read it the next day and I go like, is this, is this important? Mm. This just Mm -hmm. silly stuff or Mm. is it actually about something? And I think that's, if you're asking those questions, I think you're in a good place as an artist because you are searching for authenticity. Mm -hmm. Now, Now, Brian, I know you are a Star Trek head. And all the good, all the good writers are. <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. I'm biased. So I know you got your start with writing for Star Trek. Can you just talk about how that came about? Because I know that at one point back in the day, they actually had like an open door policy. Yeah. You know, in terms of as a writer, it's like, oh, I like the show. I can actually send you a script. And if they like it, you might actually sell a script to them. So can you just talk about how you got that entry into that? And then we can go from there. Yeah, the, um, gosh, it was in the late 90s, I think from the, like, 96, 95 to 97, um, uh, I had read about the open script submission policy at Star Trek, and because they had so many different ideas that were these high-concept science fiction stories, they knew that they were going to need an influx of of ideas to explore, and so they opened it up. Uh, people were allowed to write a spec script, and so you write a spec script, and then you submit it. I wrote 
one spec script that was basically kind uh Kira Norris, uh who's you know, I know, Lisa, you, you'll know, but I don't know if the gentlemen know Deep Space Nine as well. Uh, so Kira Norris was a was a former terrorist who now became part of the um, the reclamation of Bajor and her past was rising up. So I wrote that as a spec script and like somebody was killing off all the members in her cell, submitted the spec script and they passed on it. And, mm, mm. and I remember like this, I think probably one of the most valuable things uh, for me as a writer, like even when I applied to film school after my teacher like gave me all the pamphlets, I applied three times, three or four times before I got in. So the, the lesson of being told no is a very valuable one because it's you can be told no, but whether you hear no is up to you. Mm-hmm. And, I remember <laughs> getting the, the rejection letter from film school and sitting in my parents' house and going to a community college and thinking like, oh my God, I have to get out of here. I have to get out of this place. It's poisonous for me. Mm. And looking at that letter and sort of like just feeling somebody take my batteries out and just plopping into the couch and just holding the letter on my lap mm-hmm. and just thinking like, what do I do now? What do I do now? What do I do now? Because mm-hmm. that avenue felt closed. And basically, I I allowed myself to feel bad and to, to pout and to feel sorry for myself. For, I, for like it, it seemed like an eternity, but it was mm-hmm. probably five minutes of sitting on that couch looking at that letter before I was like, well, I have to try again. Mm-hmm. Like, because the other option was so dark and mm-hmm. so depressing, the option of staying where I was, the option of trying to make life in a town of 4,000 people. Mm-hmm. that was incredibly ignorant and homophobic and racist and meth addled that mm-hmm. like, was my, like my choice was either to be overcome by the no or to use the no as a stepping stone uh, like uh, on my path to a yes. Right. And then the second time I got a no, I, it was like both harder than the first time and easier mm-hmm. than the first time. And mm-hmm. no way- and then, um, but the second time I got a no, I got into the school, but not into the film program. I was like, I'll take it. I'll take well, it. Right. I'll, right. Just, I'll go. And my parents said that I couldn't go. My parents, like my, I had like a 4.0 average wow. and my dad was like, you're too stupid to go. And I was like, <laughs> like, Ooh, child, child, and, that was a necessity. You needed to get a Okay. <laughs> well, and that was that was the great thing about having such an idiot as a father is that his idiocy was so clearly uh, pronounced and demonstrated that I could say, "Oh, this isn't about me." Right. And also because he was so fucking stupid as a human being, I could say like, oh, I don't want to be like him. And everything he says is sort of an orange cone that mm-hmm. I have to drive around. I remember being very small on him asking me how to spell a word. And I was like, why the fuck are you asking me how to spell this word? I'm a child <laughs> and you're a full grown adult. So I knew he was an idiot. And so whenever he said that. Black people, Asian people, Latin people, homosexuals were all like the dregs of humanity and should be, you know, wiped out. And, you know, the only good faggot is a dead faggot type of thing. Wow. And going like, mm. I know that's me, even though my testicles haven't dropped. And even right. though, you know, right. sexualized myself. Right. 
Um, I was aware of reading Salem's Lot, and when the little boy was tied to a chair waiting for the master, it gave me a boner. Okay. So, what you going to do? What you going to do? You you recognize you you recognize certain things. You're like, okay, it is what it is. (laughs) You know. You know. Well, yeah. Well, that's the thing. You recognize those truths, and you're like, I get it. I get it. That's me. I got this. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. All right. Can I? Can I take? The best thing anybody can do is like ignore no. Mm. Can I take a moment now to give us a little breaker before we go on to something else yes. to go ahead and do our little or do our quiz? Are you ready for the quiz? Oh, oh God! I just I, 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 I know that listen, like listen. brain cells are so, listen, listen, very quick. Co- there are ten questions. You get five points each. Okay. I will add up the points for you. Oh God! Don't feel no pressure. You're I really feel like all- I should pull up a window so I can Google things <laughs> and ask them and be like, if you, oh, if, you, if, you need, if you need to, and also, can I just say this? Your glasses game is so on point. Like, every time I've seen you somewhere on a panel or getting some award or something or speaking somewhere, your glasses, you're just like, your game. I don't know what it is, but you're so <laughs> shit when it comes to your glasses. I'm like, you are serving looks every time I see you with the pair of glasses on. I just have to say like, that to you. Like, I feel like I should change them like throughout the conversation. Those are the George Romero's. <laughs> I, well, George Romero is a fashion icon for glasses. I was obsessed with that. That's part of the reason that I got so into glasses where people like George Romero, who were doing things with glasses that were so expressive, and it helps that I'm like a big person. I'm like six foot four, and I'm not a shrinking violet. Yeah. So like big chunky expressions. Okay. Of okay. Oh my God, listen to you. All right, here we go. You ready? Okay. All right, okay. number one. Number one, and I'm going to add them up as I go. Uh, choose one: Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, or the Mummy. Which one? Oh my God! I have qualification. There's two. The, I, I I boiled them down to two. I boiled them down to the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster first off, because those are the ones that I see a an inherent sense of queerness in. Yes. Um, like with the the Wolfman, you know, even though I understand the the implications of lycanthropy as sexuality and. You know, it's hard to ignore that there's a man struggling with feelings that he can't control. That's mm. so apparent. And then I look at Frankenstein's monster and I see him as the product of a homosexual union. Two okay. men who are creating a creating life in a way that they shouldn't necessarily be creating life. And the acknowledgement, like particularly in Bride of Frankenstein, when he's meeting with the blind man mm-hmm. and experiences human kindness from another man uh, who is touching him and holding his hand and weeping at the connection. Mm. I feel like there's a deeper soul to Frankenstein's monster, but the Wolfman's about getting your dick wet and like, you know, getting like the, your monster on in some way. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. not as sophisticated as Frankenstein's monster. So I'd have to choose Frankenstein's monster. Can I, I'm going to give you five points. Go ahead. Yeah, let me interrupt right quick. Here's this tells me so much about you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I had to ask it first because it's so telling. Like whatever Hold answer on. you pick, it basically gives me who you really are on a deeper level. <laughs> <laughs> Trip this though. Check it out. Check it out, Brian. This is what I love. 
this shows me like when I now now that I think back on some of your works, you know, Wonderfalls or whatever these shows you've worked on, I go, mm-hmm. oh, it's that other left side, right side brain thing that he mm-hmm. uses. As a gay man, as a queer man, you would say Frankenstein, and you'd find the eroticism in something that would go right by most normal people's point of view, right? I knew being a gay man, you were going to say Dracula because Dracula was fine, right? But instead, you came up with Frankenstein. But you saw it from a point of view using your left, right brain that I didn't even see. But as soon as you see it, I was like, yes, yes, I could see that. Because most anyway. people, most yes. people typically choose vampire, you yeah. know. And of course, for me, it's like you know the sexuality of it. But for me, it was like, I, yeah. And I really didn't. For me, as a kid, I really didn't see it in terms of queerness until I started watching, you know, um, Andy Warhol's with Udo Kier, watching those ones. And I realized, oh, here we are. Yes, I have found, I have found, I have found my peoples. I understand. So, well, well, yeah. Well, see, okay. Well, I mean, uh, to me, what is fascinating is your statement about oh. This, you have these two men who are making a child, and I think that is really an interesting reading to me on that movie. I remember seeing mm-hmm. it as a kid and liking it, and I didn't see it again until after I saw that. Is it Gods and Monsters? Is that the yeah. name of that movie? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and it made mm-hmm. me think about it differently because of how that movie was. The be- this was was happening behind, with like in that director's life. I was like, oh. I know he's adding more in my mind. I'm like he's he, like he's got to put his own self into the work. Because when you're a kid, you don't think about it. you don't think about how filmmakers or artists are putting them, themselves into the work. But when you get older and you and you and you realize that's what you have to do to make your mm-hmm. stuff work. When I'm watching that movie, I'm going, "There's so much more to this movie than what I'm, you know, than what you think about, you know." And even back then, even though it was some like what 37 or something like that, those guys still have to put that in the work in a way that. Um, it's hidden because of what's going on with the, with the type of the material and the Hayes office and shit like that. But yes. it's still very palatable for people who are on that wavelength and get it just like that. Yes. I thought what you said was really fascinating. Yeah, All right, here's, five, next, five here's points. the next one. He gets five <laughs> points. All right, here's the next five one. Additional points. <laughs> if this is the grading system, then I'm comfortable because you're, it's- you're good. You're doing well. You're doing well. <laughs> Brian, you Brian, you have not failed me or shamed us. Okay, here we go. Uh, favorite Clive Barker short story from the Books of Blood. And if you can't, uh, and if you can't remember the title, you can just give me the synopsis. So yeah. in the hills and the cities. Shut uh, up! Yeah, shut up! <laughs> Shut up. Don't listen. That is my favorite. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Oh my God. I'm getting my, I got goosebumps already. Listen, listen. That thing reminds me so much of the, the original Worker Man. And I've been waiting for someone to turn that into a movie or a series or something. So if you can make that happen, Brian, make that happen because that's like my all time favorite. And if you haven't read that, please get Clive Barker's Books of Blood classic. And if you don't know who Clive Barker is, shame on you. Exactly. A pox upon your house. So very good. I'm going to give you double points for that. That's a 10-pointer for you for that one. What were you saying, Brian? Go ahead. Well, one of the things that's so interesting about that book and reading it when I did, uh, because there were a couple of short stories in Clyde Barker's work where he that are absolutely homosexual. and. That one was the most explicit one, and it was also the one where I was like, "Oh, I guess semen is salty," because they, they <laughs> he described it, and my testicles hadn't dropped yet, and I listen, hadn't 
Like, so I was like, well, I have that to look forward to. Uh, also, like societally, it's so fascinating because if you don't know the book, the, the short story, it's about two gay guys driving through Eastern Europe and they stumble upon a, a sort of local culty thing where the, um, the, the inhabitants of villages will rope themselves together to create a giant person. Mm. And then those two people will either battle or what have you. So it you has, have oh, this heteronormative oh. kind of like, we all strap each strap ourselves to each other as society, as heterosexuals, as procreators, and these two queer guys driving through town, not being part of the major societal expression, and then uh, having one of them want to join and the other one going like, I don't want to join. Right. And how then I, then, then that makes me think of modern day gay bees and things like that. Yes. Of like gay couples who are like, but we are safer the more heteronormative we are. And right. that distinction was laid out in, I don't know if that, that story was written in the late 70s or early 80s. In the 80s. Uh, in the 80s. But it was very prescient in in terms of gay culture wanting or running to normalization and heteronormativity to protect themselves and to feel a belonging and i i definitely related to the slightly older uh character of the two gay men who was seeing this for what it was and seeing that it was kind of scary and weird and heterosexuality heterosexual society has its own sort of strangeness and dangers that it's okay not to want to be a part of yeah to see something and say like not for me right and that was so interesting and in, in the hills and in the cities because it it was a very simple story but it had all of these levels and i yes. know Hulu is doing a books and blood kind of creep show movie mm-hmm. brandon braga who i worked with on star trek uh was was doing is doing it and they chose four stories from from the books of blood and i was like Save in the hills and the cities for me, because Please. I, I staff that I, I like. I think it's such a a fascinating tale, particularly now when we're getting into old school queer thoughts and new school queer thoughts. Because right. I know gays that are slightly older than me who just don't understand uh truvada or the 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 treatment as prevention because large swaths of their community were eliminated so they can't get past the no condom rule and they can't get past younger generations who are like it's okay to have unprotected sex now because we have all of this medication and then like so i was like if you do the adaptation you have to talk about like a generation of gay men who went through a trauma and a generation of gay men who didn't and just sort of hurt mm-hmm. them, but are still mm-hmm. covid parties on fire right I, Right, right, right. The complexities (laughs) of that. It's a a great thing to unpack through now. You have to do that, Brian. And and Brian, if you do it, because it has a very Shirley Jackson feel to it, because it's always about, you know, the outsiders coming into a village, not knowing the customs. And, you know, it has all those tropes that I love. So if you do it as a movie, you have to hire me as an extra, even if I have to be one of the people who gets smashed on the bottom, like even if I'm just strapped to a body, I would be happy to do that. 
I work very cheaply, you know, just, you know, a sandwich, some, 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 some decent wine and I'm good. I'm good. A good Chablis and I'm good. You know, just that, that's just the rule. Them's the rules. All right. Here's your next question. Okay. Tacos or burritos? <sighs> Tacos. All right. Good for you. Yes. You get good. five points. Yes. All right. Yes. Here you go. Yes. Favorite Star Trek episode on the original series? Uh, mirror, mirror. Very good. Good mm -hmm. answer. Good answer. Another five points. All right. <clears throat> Favorite David Cronenberg movie? And if you don't say what I want to hear, my feelings are <laughs> going to be hurt. <laughs> I, so so, no pressure. No, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Have, go ahead. I have qualifiers, but like just given my, my, my background in wanting to be a psychiatrist, it's probably not a huge surprise. But for some reason, the brood resonates. Oh, um, good man. Good man. Good man. Yes. See, I, I just want to give a caveat. As, as much as I love Cornerberg's uh, uh, work, um, tread lightly, I love, sir. <laughs> I love Eastman Promises. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not a horror film, but I love that movie so much. I think it's it make, is that fight scene in the um Look, if you're getting your ass beat if you're getting your ass beat and you dead, it is a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> that fight well, scene in the sauna is so is so like, oh shit, you know. So yeah. Okay. And history of violence is also yes. yeah, really yeah, really, yes. Yes. yeah. Well what is it what is everybody else's favorite Cronenbergs? I love all of them. Me too. Which is not a good one. But if I had to choose one it's uh, it's hard. It would be a toss up between the brood and the other two. Of course, the classic that I saw at the drive-in as a kid that w had sexuality, shivers, and nastiness. Yes, also known as they came they came from within, but then had to rename it because there's another they came from within. That one, and then the other one, um, Rabbit with Marilyn. Yeah, the the porn star. So you know, it's hard with Cronenberg. I'm gonna. As a kid, anything he did, I was going to get it. I bought VHS, DVD, whatever it came out in, I was buying it. The body it, horror, that I was mean, my thing. Yeah, I mean, I love him. I mean, I love Exorcism. Tread lightly, sir. Tread lightly. Yeah. <laughs> I love Exorcism a lot. Exorcism is amazing. Um, I actually like Crash a lot. A lot of Crash don't is like Crash. Crash. Oh, yeah. I, I love Crash, Crash really but, but um, that, that I think a lot of people, your love for it, I think subliminally, it's like if you have a love or appreciation for kink or anything that's subversive, you're going to enjoy that. If you don't, if you're kind of like square vanilla, it's probably distasteful for those folks. Right. So <laughs> usually if people say like if, if people are David Cronenberg fans and then they say, oh, crash, not so much. Eh, that kind of lets me know that, yeah, maybe we're not going to be friends that much. Too many black people. That's the problem. Okay. <laughs> is, there, is there something? Is there an interpretation of of Cronenberg's work as queer? Even though they're they're very heterosexual, yeah. they're very uh, you know it is it, it it is that sort of you know I, I think of Shivers and I think of all of the weirdness in Shivers, including the little girls on leashes and all of that madness. Where I'm like, 
okay, you're just throwing every kink in there and saying <laughs> this is what, what society hell? is afraid of. But the fact that he's sort of open and relatively non-judgmental about the kinks, even though he's depicting them as horrific for society, he does feel very queer friendly or queer adjacent because he's not looking at uh, homosexuality as abhorrent he's just mm -hmm. looking at it as you know part of the spectrum so yeah, it's, just aspect, it's just an aspect of humanity and yeah right, right. Yeah, you're right right yeah. i mean well I mean, I mean i think that's what his movies are about like his movies they show you things that you know are arresting but i think it's like what lisa said it's like he's trying to show you something to say are you cool with this are you going <laughs> this aspect of the world? Right, Are you right, this too? Because, right, you know, right. I'm not judging you, but but I want to know if you are cool. It's, it's right. interesting. I was, yeah. just, I was just going to say mine was probably, you guys are going to be like, really? I remember it changing. You remember when, um, when the thing came out and the technology they used on that weird monster would it come to the head like that alien? My all-time favorite horror movie, yes. But for me, it was Scanners. Oh, yeah, classic, yeah. I remember it yeah. being like a new technology we hadn't seen before where it right. elevated and, the, the, you know, and everything would just it. I just remember that being like something special. Where it's it's mentioned Michael Ironside is always having resting bitch face or just being <laughs> his pissed. He had permanent pissitude. Like after right. I saw Scanners as a kid, every time I saw Michael Ironside, I'm like, you know what? He's just going to be pissed for the rest of his life in every movie he's in. And I am here for it. All right, Brian, here's your next one. Now, here, there's a caveat to this one. <clears throat> Listen carefully. What's the most transgressive horror film you've seen in the last three years that is not from Ari Aster? You can't name Hereditary or Midsommar. I mean, I feel like Get Out, honestly, I, I, that in, in terms of being so uh, densely woven with historical archetypes that are going to uh, be recognized by a certain faction of the audience and then giving the opportunity for another faction of the audience to educate themselves. I feel like there was a lot going on there. Um, I thought Us was uh, a little less successful and got a little muddy. Once I agree. Oh, yeah. I agree. Oh, yeah. yeah. Once it wasn't supernatural, it yeah, it didn't. Yeah. I yeah. feel like yeah, I, and I loved Hereditary, and I haven't seen Midsommar yet because uh, when it came out, I had half the people in my life going like, "Oh my god, it's so good," and half the people going like, "Oh my god, it's so bad." And, and that's why you need to see it. That's when you get that polarized. <laughs> yeah. That's the best reason to go see it. All right, I, are you ready? Yeah. I got one from one. when you're done, Tuli. All, right. All right. Best. Horror fashion icon. Are you ready? Here are your choices. Best fashion horror icon. Here we go. <clears throat> Pinhead. Candyman. Catherine Trammell. Marion Blaylock. I was hoping you were going to give us some Katie Deneuve. Um, because <laughs> all it's Yves Saint Laurent. Yes. Like, like she's wearing, she's dripping with Yves Saint Laurent throughout that movie. I do love Candyman's coat. I love a great coat, and it has that kind of uh, lamb wool collar. Uh, but I think you can't 
argue with with Yves Saint Laurent. Mm. You do get the points for that. All right, this, one's, <laughs> this is this is a tricky one. <clears throat> if Mads Mikkelsen couldn't play Hannibal, who would you cast? Oh, don't get in trouble. <laughs> and Fanables, don't get mad at me. It's just a question. Don't come at me. Well, it's interesting because we had this conversation on a on a Collider interview where I kind of went through like all the the list of people that the network wanted uh, because they they were like, oh, he's creepy and European, and I'm like, Hannibal eats people. Uh, so, um, Gosh. So you've locked yourself into the person who played him, didn't you? So well, that happens though sometimes. Yeah. It, it, it happened um, while we were making it because there were so many, uh, they absolutely did not want him. Um, and they were throwing all of these names that were a never. Pox, a pox upon their house. A pox upon <laughs> their house. <laughs> they ultimately let me do it, but they, you know, I, I remember getting a letter from uh, uh, somebody high up in the uh, at the network who said, "Well, you got what you wanted. You're on your own." Ooh, and wow! We didn't get a lot of publicity after that. Oh, they some pe- oh they some petty that bitches is, is what you're yeah. saying. There was some petty so, I still have the email. And I'm like, yeah, uh, okay, I've got the receipt. So, <laughs> uh, I, you know, it's really hard for like it's hard to imagine anybody else doing because I'm like cycling through all of these actors. Like maybe Jeremy Irons in a different age, mm-hmm. like circa Dead Ringers, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I just can't imagine anybody coming near Maz Mickelson. Ding, 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 ding! That is the correct answer because if you would have <laughs> said if if you would have said anybody else, you would got the buzzer. <laughs> you would have lost some points because the correct the correct answer is bitch what yeah. <laughs> what because first of all i've been a mads mickelson fan since pusher and i don't know if you guys know this but i live in his cheekbones during the fall and i live in i live i live in daniel day kim's cheekbones in the summertime so in the fall i reside Inside the cheekbone structure of Mads Mickelson, and <laughs> you get your, your you get your five points because let me tell you why, and and please don't tell Sir Anthony Hopkins I said this. Please, no one who's listening to this, please don't tell him I said this. But I have loved Silence of the Lambs. I've loved the Hannibal Lecter character. Um, I love what he represented in terms of just the sophistication, the understanding what proper wine goes with the proper foods, um, <laughs> understanding how clothing and art and music. But when you cast Mads Mikkelsen, not only did you give me my food, my fashion, because bitch, listen, imagine a three-piece suit or any kind of suit, mm-hmm. chef's kiss. But That's my sexuality. Listen, mm-hmm. listen, the psychosexual stuff, the heart all those things that I loved about Hannibal, but what you added that made it go over the top, that made a new canon, I don't care what you fanable bitches or anybody who's like a <laughs> Sir Anthony Hopkins, you've made the new canon because when I saw Mads Mikkelsen, I thought, now I want to sleep with Hannibal Lecter. Before, I just wanted to eat with him and talk about arts and what wines go with what food. But now it's like, you know what? We can actually sleep together, and I would be okay with that. And that is the correct answer, sir, because any name you would have said, I would have cut you. 
<laughs> with a butter knife, and that would have been the end of this podcast. I, I, you know what? So you, you get what? your I, points I, for that. I, I just, you I get just the have points one for that. A little comment on this. Um, you, you know, I was talking with someone about this Hannibal Lecter stuff recently, and I was like, you know what I love? What stays with me the most is the opening of Manhunter. And you come into the house and you see hey. that little lens with the light and the hey. the, the stocking like over the, lens, the camera lens and pretend over his eyes. But I love that the first minute when like Will Graham goes into that house, the the crime scene is that white 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 room with the blood on it. Mm-hmm. And I and I love the way the opening the opening episode the premiere episode of Hannibal. You have that killing that is that is bloody like that in a way that reminded me mm-hmm. that was such a stark okay, kind man. of like shocking of like I'm gonna give you as much fucking blood as I possibly can. Fuck the NBC censors yeah. and yeah. I'm just gonna do all that in a way yes. that is it's a fresh way. But yes. it, it, it was such an interesting kind of like you know like to me like it, it said this is what this is supposed to be. Yeah. This is like it's harkening back to what I loved about when I watched Manhunter, which which wasn't really in Silence of the Lambs, and and, and it wasn't anything of the the subsequent films was that kind of just like stark contrast of what's mm. going on of oh shit oh shit and you so you're not like like you're so like um, you're unmoored the right. whole time you're watching all that mm-hmm. and I just like I just wanted to applaud you for for the way that was executed because it just kind of tied into what I love about that 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 whole kind of like that that Thomas Harris kind of like universe so yes yeah well Thomas Harris was a huge inspiration just in like stylistically the way he gathers words and puts sentences together were like, everything felt so bespoke in a way that like I think the tone of the show was just trying to how do you recreate how do you recreate a uh, a literary style cinematically exactly mm-hmm. exactly exactly all right final question are you ready I, I have one ready. after you one after you. and then no, that's fine and, the and then I'll let you have the last one yes here's tomorrow <laughs> it's a choose one okay <clears throat> here we go tangerine dream goblin Vangelis, John Carpenter. Oh, God. <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> Goblin is, I mean, Goblin. <laughs> Brian, think carefully. You're at a perfect score right now. If you blow this. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's so hard. Okay, like, I think we have to do process of elimination. Think, uh, like, if we were... Like, I think a certain Tangerine Dream scores, which when they, you know, if you look at The Keep and some of their earlier stuff, like even their score for Legend, like mm-hmm. a compare and contrast with what Jerry Goldsmith did, they're, they're so good and atmospheric until they bring in an electric guitar. Mm. <laughs> you're like, what? Uh, like, who invited the electric guitar to this party? Who was the gatekeeper at the door who let that in? Like, stop it. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's, I, I like, I, I've had several composers say, like, were your family murdered by electric guitar wow. players? Because I have such an aversion to rock instruments in in scores because yeah. like, yeah. you're, like it's, it brings me out of it in a way. 
And John Carpenter has done a little bit of that. Like if you look at his They Live soundtrack, there's a sort of but don't donk kind of um chicken fried sort of southern influenced uh, <laughs> aspect of it um Americana when, feel, right? when yeah. goblin has used rock instruments they feel more integrated into yeah. the music as opposed to standing out um so it was Tangerine Dream, Goblin, John Carpenter, and... And Vangelis. Vangelis. Vangelis is very sleepy to me and requires kind of cinema to, to activate. So that's an easy one to eliminate. Um, and I feel like the three remaining have all committed crimes with electric guitars in their works. <laughs> um, Crimes. Brian is calling the popo or some folks. Like, you know what? I need the police here right now. <laughs> I feel like I wish we were talking about individual scores and then I could say unequivocally because I see uh, their work. I I feel like there was a time in my life that Tangerine Dream was uh, the one, but I feel like having gone seen to see them perform in public, uh, I've seen John Carpenter perform in public and I've seen Goblin perform in public. And I, I guess I have to commit to Goblin. All right, very good. We'll give you the five points. So, sir, you've gotten a perfect score. Good for hold you. Hold on, hold on. Let's but, but this like, is the bonus. Here's the bonus note. He's going to give you a bonus. What's your question? Uh, Brian, I'm curious you what all you have, would have chosen in those with those four. Well, okay, so I, I, I like, like I agree with you about Vangelis. I mean, I love his score for Blade Runner, but I don't think you really listen to his music outside of that. Right, and it, it, you know, and it's so wedded to that film that you're kind of like, okay, I, I mean, like, I'm, like, I might to say Tangerine Dream, and only because That's what I was gonna say. there's like, I mean, I love that score for Thief like so fucking much. So yes. good. It's like Jesus Christ. Um, yes. You know, like Goblin, I'm, I'm only familiar with the, with the sound, with the Suspiria stuff, and then he did, the, and, and, and I was mad that they didn't do the soundtrack to the sequel of Suspiria. Um, so I'm gonna go with Tangerine Dream. Yeah, that was my my choice. But ultimately, any one of those, they're just like classic little like as a child, like those films and seeing horror. Like any one of those answers, I would have given you five points, Brian. Ha! Huh. <laughs> but but, 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 but I I would have wanted to know from you like specifically why. For me, it's it's a toss up between like Near Dark and Legend. And I might have to say Legend, uh, it's kind of toss-up, but only because when I saw Legend, like, I'm totally in love with Satan, Darkness, in that. Like, I think he is, like, the most handsome. Like, I would totally toss away Tom Cruise. Like, there would be no movie. Like, five minutes within meeting Darkness, I would be like, well, Tom, it's been real. I've, I've, had, I've had wet dreams with Darkness. Listen, <laughs> he's so sexy, and he's so... He is all of that and a bag of chips, and it's like there's no 
like if I would have written that script, it would have had a totally different (laughs) beginning, middle and end. (laughs) So I don't know. It's a toss between near dark and and legend. I wanted to be Mia Sarah. Like I was like, what are you complaining about? Like (laughs) the dress she had on like, bitch, look at the clothes you get to wear. (laughs) The the things you could have. Y'all need to start looking at darkness with some respect, please. What is Tom Cruise going to get you? Looking all tired, looking, hair all unkempt. I mean, please, please. And it was free teeth, right? Yes! That's hilarious. <laughs> all right. So, Brian. Okay. Who is your most important for 20 points? Yes. <laughs> the most important one you do not want to miss. I need a drum roll here. Cake okay. or pie? Pie. Wow, yes. that's real fast. I don't know, he didn't even hesitate. I like, didn't even hesitate. I, I need a show about pie. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Listen, I'll let you slide on that. Okay. Pie. Now, Brian, let me, ask you, let me ask you this. Um, I love how, pie myself. How, how, how has your relationship to, like, horror and science fiction changed as you've gotten older? I mean, you're an old sci-fi horror head, like many of us, like, because you've been in the game for a while and you've seen a lot of different projects, like how has your relationship changed with the content, especially a lot of the newer stuff that's coming out? Like, how are you feeling right now in terms of what's, you know? It's interesting because I think that there's, you know, with horror because of the genre and because of the perceptions of the genre, there's, there's a lot of crap. And uh, there's, you know, there's crap that I love. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's crap where I'm like, I like I, I'm sorry I can't give you a compliment. Like I'm so I'm just gonna stay silent mm-hmm. because that crap is just crap. Uh, yeah. I think what's as as my metaphorical storytelling and thematic storytelling has sort of become more of a priority. For for myself, I, I look at certain horror movies and I don't connect with them. Um, like I, uh, I thought Hereditary was fascinating, particularly from the you know the the disillusion of like you know the American family and everything that it stands for, and also kind of the interesting acknowledgement of you know. Like we can hate our family members. Yeah, like, we can yeah. sent them and feel that they're bad for us. Mm-hmm. And and I thought that was a, a fascinating multi tiered movie. Um, but I go see something like Black Christmas, and I mm-hmm. think, what are you doing? All right. What what do you like? The best part of that was the the date rape song written by Ricky. Uh, Lindholm, uh, who was on Pushing Daisies, uh, mm-hmm. and but most of the stuff I, I like in that movie, I thought were half baked notions of bigger ideas that they would have been better off embracing. But it felt like I, I, I felt like I was watching filmmakers run across a battlefield that a minefield while somebody is laying down, suppressing fire from an automatic rifle. Like there is just, there's a, there's a a shot in that where there's a, a, um, what do you call them? A, A light stand, um, 
The C stand? The C stand? The C stand. stand. Mm -hmm. There's like, there's a creepy moment where a character is going up the stairs and she walks past a C stand. No way. Really? And I'm like, okay, why do you have a C stand? That takes you out the movie. Yeah. In a sorority, like these girls have film equipment? Like that. Yeah. they're doing, I, I, a, they're doing a you, they're doing a YouTube show. <laughs> they gotta have those likes. Yeah. And wow. I feel like a lot of a, a lot of there's a there's great cynicism about the genre that I feel like somebody is like oh the audience it's it's you know it's a horror movie uh, and set in a sorority and these girls uh, like. Anybody watching this movie isn't going to care whether there's a C stand in the frame, and I find that so insulting. That's lazy. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's like, yeah. like yeah. it infuriates me. Uh, and but I, yeah, I don't blame the filmmakers because I know they were making that movie for free ninety nine, and it was uh, you know a challenge to do, but they were sort of set up to fail and did. Yeah. Right. And, Sometimes it's your best take. Mm. Right. Sometimes it's your best take, and you're like, "Fuck it." <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Yeah. And there's there's a I I feel like with a lot of modern movies that the they're not taking full advantage of what storytelling can do, and they're sort of like trying to mm-hmm. squat over a conveyor belt and and shit it right onto Netflix and <laughs> and just say like somebody will eat it, and and that's. <laughs> And, and they will, and they're not wrong. And then, Ta-da! right, right. But we'll see it, and we'll go like, "Oh, why didn't you do better?" And because I, you know, I know, because ha- I, I know you have this thing that you call it. Uh, in a couple of interviews I've seen you do, you talk about the way you you describe it as like to make it better. It's kind of yes and dot dot dot. You know what right. I mean? That kind of that kind of concept. So I I, hey, I, I feel what you're saying. Hey Brian, I know we skipped over like you know ten shows that you've been on. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we just have to mention a couple of you. Of course, you mentioned, you know, Pushing Daisies and, you know, Wonderfalls. And um, we talked about Hannibal a little bit. We talked, we didn't get into American Gods. You know, I mean, oh, there's so American many. God, so, yes. American Gods. There's just so many things you've heroes, done. Heroes. Don't amazing. forget heroes. heroes. Um, I want to bring up something yeah. really quick. I was just sitting here texting with one of my closest friends who you know, um, Scott Ellis Lawrence, Lauren, and um, his husband, Todd to your, your old partner. Um, so, and I was just telling him, guess who I'm sitting here interviewing? He's like, what, bitch? He's like, tell him happy birthday. Oh, so, thank you. His birthday's right before mine. Yeah. yeah. How, so they how was your birthday you weekend last weekend? How was your birthday weekend? I, like, I, I'm wet wired for isolation. Like, I, 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 I are I'm, we twins? Are we twins? I mean, I'm. T- <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm glad that things are happening in the world because I feel no obligation to to experience them. But this is, I, you know, it's it's terrible that the world is on fire. It's terrible that we have such poor leadership, and it's terrible that, uh, you know, people are are struggling with their health and their finances and the reality of how to get through it. Um, for me personally. I love an excuse. I'm, I'm actually very introverted in some ways. I project extrovert, but I'm actually 
introverted and I, my favorite, my favorite times are being alone. My favorite birthday is when I went to by myself to uh, Gruyere, Switzerland for the HR Giger museum. And that was my, Oh my God, gosh, bless. Oh my God. Oh my God. Listen, listen, I am so jealous of you right now. <laughs> like if we if we were in Hilliard's office in Santa Monica and West Hollywood right now, I would probably slap you in person. That's fine. The fact that you said like the fact that you said that because like HR Gardner and just being that kind of introverted writer, <laughs> but doing something fun that's just you and you don't have to like make time for anybody else. I know it sounds selfish, people, but as introverts, sometimes that's how we recharge. And when you're doing something that you enjoy and that you love, and the mm-hmm. fact that I'm hearing HR Geiger coming from you, uh, <laughs> and, like it's, you know, he's he, like, he's all over my desk. Oh, um, yeah. ah! <laughs> but that's like, like I recommend that trip. If you're ever looking for like when we're allowed to travel in Europe um, again, uh, Fly into Zurich, take a train south to Bern, stay the weekend in Bern, swim in the Ayers River, like do it in the summer because it's it's ice cold coming right off the Alps, but it's super hot outside and it's this invigorating energy being in that water. Then you drive uh, two hours south to Gruyere and you get to walk around the countryside, go into H.R. Giger, um, bar which is fantastic do the museum walk around the 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 castle and look at the cows and it is it's my favorite birthday i've ever had it was i was by myself and i was just experiencing hr giger and art and speaking german in the the north and (laughs) french in the south and uh not that i I, I can do si vous play and la decision uh, uh, but um, this, this sounds like your type of trip. Listen, as soon as this pandemic totally is that. over, as soon as this is over, I'm going back to Europe and I go to see my family who's in Italy. I'm going to see my dad. My dad lived in Germany for a long time. He's back. He's back in Italy now, but he speaks fluent German. We're going to HR Garg and dad is just going to have to deal with the fact that there are certain things that I love that are going <laughs> to probably freak him out. And he's just going to have to deal. God damn it. like why is there a penis and vaginas exploding and going through people's ears and nostrils and it's like dad because that's what he does (laughs) that's the world i live in dad and you just have to deal with it (laughs) alien for me like i realized later on it's it's it is kind of a queer horror movie because it's male rape male birth it's turning all of the gender norms on their ear for a horror story, sort of saying like, what's the worst thing that to happen for a man to be penetrated? And mm-hmm. what's the worst thing to happen for a man? Childbirth, like right. things that are uh, um, heterosexual men telling horror stories about their worst nightmares of violation and then coming off as just sort of queer and you realize just how scary homosexuality is for heterosexuals by the movie alien is there is there anything you can tell because i know you know when um you're with sam samuel wyman and when you were on the panel at comic-con talking about the queer horror is there anything that you can tell us that that you're able to tell us about the documentary at all or is everything still on the hush hush 
Well, it's it's not hush hush so much as um, there queer was, for fear is that what it's called? Queer for fear. <laughs> it is um, essentially how we as queer people, um, or Hilliard and I, I'm I'm presuming <laughs> uh, we're the we're the queer ones in this conversation. Um, the the notion of having to project yourself onto narratives because you're not represented. Like I'm, I, I think that there's, there's something interesting about the first time I saw myself on camera was Fright Night with Evil Ed. I was like, this queer fan who they weren't explicitly talking about his sexuality, mm-hmm. but I do remember watching that as a kid and my older brother coming in and, and taking an instant dislike to evil Ed and saying mm-hmm. something's wrong with that guy. And I was what? like, you've got people. you're picking right. it up. And it, now, now that was a sexy vampire to me. Okay. <laughs> yes. Loved him. Love that, him. That alley scene, the alley scene oh. with, with Jerry Dandridge and Evil yeah. Ed, where he's like, come with me. And Evil Ed is on his knees and yeah. Dandridge is standing over him and he's offering him his hand and he's offering a safe place where he won't be beat up anymore. Right. So, so it's not only is it about getting into the historic aspects of what happened with queerdom in terms of F.W. Murnau and, and Nosferatu and yeah. the vampire and James Whale and early cinema being about kind of queer male storytellers giving a coded yeah. uh, experience for people to see themselves as queers in the movies and then everything that was happening historically so you have this wonderful kind of blossoming of of queerness in movies that then then is met with pink triangles and gays being carted off to concentration camps in Europe and that, and that sort of cycle of celebration of queerness to mm-hmm. oppression of queerness and how we going through that cycle up through the 70s celebration of queerness being tamped down by the AIDS crisis and mm-hmm. you know the the Hayes code that was about if anybody demonstrated any sort of other sexuality they had to die before the end of the movie exactly mm-hmm. I killed the exactly. kill your gays stuff happened yeah yeah that was, yeah. That was it was a rule it was a right. rule it was out. yeah yeah uh, it's, it's, go ahead Oh, so like there's there's so many different facets of it from the Hayes Code to 50s sort of beefcake pinups that were celebrated in the AIP movies like mm-hmm. Teen Wolf and you know, even Revenge of the Creature Steel, like the, the creature evolved. He he abducts a bodybuilder off the beach. Yeah. And so there are interpretations of like, why is the creature now taking a man when he was attracted to women? Well, here's a man who is actually kind of demonstrating demonstrating a, a what is a, a previously um, recognized feminine construct of being careful and caring about your aesthetic. Mm-hmm. So because a bodybuilder was caring how he looked and how he was presenting to society and that was 
uh, currency for him, like a woman's appearance, the creature recognized him as, as feminine and uh, mm-hmm. went after him. So it's a it's about history, it's about context, and it's also talking to queer storytellers and saying, when did you first see yourself? Mm-hmm. When did you first, like Hilliard in, in a preliminary interview said something that was so fantastic, which was his mother took him to drive-ins and when somebody confronted uh, him, I'm telling your story, okay. confronted Hilliard okay. about uh, why are you bringing your child to a drive-in to see Night of the Living Dead and his mother saying, horror movies are going to teach my child how to survive because here's a Listen. black man. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. I mean, that's the exact same feeling that, like, when I, when Tanana Reeve Dew and I talk about this a lot, because Tanana Reeve Dew's mother introduced her to horror, and Tanana Reeve and I have had these conversations often together where it's like, horror teaches you not only survival skills, but it also teaches you to trust your own intuition. Right. It teaches you to also have empathy and compassion for those who are different from everyone else. And it also allows you to to embrace the other. For me, that was like one of the main reasons why if any horror movie or sci-fi or anything as a child when I was growing up, I always identified with the monster or the creature or whatever the bad thing was. My empathy and my sympathy went to that and I was rooting for them. I mean, the most recent example of that was like, I know this sounds really dumb, but it was like one of the worst versions of... Uh, the Jurassic Park movies, was it Jurassic World, where Mm -hmm. they had the island and, you know, they were trying to save as many of the dinosaurs as they could. Yeah, and I (laughs) took my mom to go see that, and I'm sitting there crying for the dinosaurs who didn't make it. Like, I didn't give a shit about the people. Like, I was hoping hoping the people would die. Like, at the end of that movie, it's like, hey, we're eating people. I was like, good, bitches. Come on, Blue. Eat them all. Get the chicken. Eat them but I'm sitting there boohooing like, oh my god! And they, of course, they set me up, Stephen, yeah. where they had the one, the, the lone dine, the big long neck ones, and they're like trying to get to the bridge and they can't make it. And I'm sitting, I'm a grown ass woman, and I'm sitting here boohooing because I have my 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 allyship and my concern is for those poor monsters and these evil humans who are ruining everything. But I have always been like that, like with Godzilla with, like, my mom took me to go see the, like, my mom's favorite horror movie is The Birds, and we're big Hitchcock fans, and Hitchcock is notorious mm-hmm. for queering things, especially with the Hayes Call, I mean, from when my mom allowed me to see Rope, Rope and I love Rope. it, because one, mm-hmm. one of my favorite actors who was so fine, oh, my God, you guys Farley know what I'm Granger? talking about. Farley Listen, Granger? that is that was my <laughs> husband when I was, like, five. I saw him, and I said, He's gay, he's wonderful, he's fabulous, he dresses well. That's my husband. We're just going to have to work through this. We're going to have to work through it together some kind of way. But it was like, my sympathies was not with, oh my God, the poor dude who got killed and stuffed inside the trunk while they're having this fabulous dinner party. My sympathy was, was, oh my God, Farley, please don't get busted. What can we do to make sure that the teacher does not realize that you guys, your mentor has... It was like, they have to get away with this. We can't kill them. They can't die. Like, they didn't, they, just a misunderstanding. You don't understand the story. Like, in every horror movie, anything, even with The Omen, of all things, with Damien, is it Damien's fault that his father is Satan? Really? He had nothing to do with that. And is it his fault that he's coming into his power and 
humans might just have to die. Like that's you know that's just life sometimes for certain people. Like in every horror, well, it was movie, already written, right? It's already <laughs> written, and God can't get mad because he already knew this shit was going to happen anyway. So what's the problem? What's the problem? I don't understand it. And this is me as a child thinking this. So it was like I always identified horror as not only for the marginalized, but horror has always been queer. Horror has always been about the the other. That's why I think I love the fact, uh, Brian, when you were on the the panel with um, Sam, who's the director of the the documentary that's coming out with queer horror, where he talked about the four things that makes horror queer. And I remember I wrote them down because like that is like the most succinct thing because you know I, I read a lot and I've you know I talked to a lot of my queer friends who are into horror and we have these conversations and we're always in agreement. Horror has always been queer. It's just the rest of the people just need to catch up with it. And the four <laughs> things he talked about, the four things he talked about was he talked about is explicit representation if you have it. If mm-hmm. it's possible, of course, queer coding, we know what that is, you know, things are implicate, you know, kind of like certain things are kind of, you know, yeah, it might be kind of queer or gay, it's so but it's cool. always going to be queer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And automatically <laughs> otherness, otherness is automatically going to put you in that box anyway. And of course, if the creator of the content is queer anyway, that just makes it queer by by definition. So I just think that the. the What's awesome now is that a lot of the the content that's coming out in terms of horror, people can openly be expressive and be open and not have to hide it behind all these old tropes, these old things that are just like implicit. No, I want things to be explicit now. And issues that we have to deal with, because I was thinking about all the films when I was a kid that, that I actually enjoyed but got in trouble, people hated. I'm thinking about films that not necessarily genre films, like I'm thinking about cruising, I'm thinking about, you know, Basic Instinct. I'm thinking about all these films that I've loved that have queer characters or have lots of explicit queer content, but because there's not enough of it, it's kind of like with Black people. When you don't see enough of something and you only see one thing, it starts to seem like a stereotype when it's like, yeah, bitch, a queer person, you know what? Maybe a bitch want to kill a bunch of people, and that's just how it is. <laughs> and maybe my sexual proclivities has nothing to do with anything. Maybe I just want to just chop up some people and eat them. That's just how it is. Y'all don't have to deal. Well, like I'm open. Hold on, hold on, I'm hold on. Open so Brian, Brian, Brian. <laughs> so you see, I'm open to that. See why I want you to interview her. I'm open, yeah. open to that. Yes. Yes. I'm open to that. So it's interesting. You, it's interesting you bring up cruising because I watched that movie when I was a kid, and I thought it was so. Um, I just thought it was disturbing because of what was happening. But I saw the director's cut uh, a couple years ago. And it's a really, the director's cut is a really fascinating movie. It's really. Is it dramatically different? I haven't seen the director's cut. It's, it's, Did uh, they take it up? It was very safe to me. Did they take it up? Was it, was it, was yes. it like 40 minutes were cut out of it? Like 40 minutes of the film yeah. was cut out? Yeah. yeah, there's a huge, it's, 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 it's way more explicit. Okay. It's, um, um, in a lot of ways, you just—it's just like you can tell. It's like, oh, this is something they would—they could never get it past any censor. Like, it's did, Al, did, like, did, like did, it's Al, did Al Pacino do it? Did Al Pacino kill them? Because when I saw the original <laughs> version, like the version that came out at the end, when I was a youngster, I was like, that mofo did it. No, no, I'm gonna no, no. keep my mouth no, shut. No, he, no, he, 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 no, he doesn't play the like going down that route. But it's just a movie that you're like, I don't even know how he was able to film some of the stuff um, just because you're like, dude, you know, back then, what, there's just, just the X rating. You're like, 
this would even let them get an X rating. Like, this, exactly. like, like, you can't even like do that that way. It's very, um, it's just interesting. It's a very crazy movie. That 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 final version, um, yeah. it's actually worth people watching because this movie's is it's very maligned for what it was when it originally came mm-hmm. out. And it, I'm not saying it restores it to like some masterpiece status. But it does like show the film in a way that, that he kind of wanted it to be, and you know to and 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 it's it's not I mean you know what the story is what it is about like the homosexual the killings of homosexuals but I think the way it's expressed in that other version is a lot more just like I I think just more comprehensible I think right. the, the original cut is you kind of like left mm. like, like like you're not like. There's too many questions right. about just the right. narrative in general, and that's all right. cleared up in the director's cut. Plus, there's more like, <laughs> dude, you wouldn't have shot this shit. I don't, I don't know how you did all this. You know? Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially when I they know. were giving them shit and making it difficult. Go ahead, Brian. I, I didn't know it was a gay movie for the longest time because I saw the video box and I was like, is this the wild ones? Is it like right. it was Al Pacino in a leather sort of military cap? And I was like, is it a World War Two movie? Is it a biker movie? Is it like more, you know, Martin Scorsese, toxic masculinity kind of ramblings, which like we're all like, I haven't seen a lot of Martin Scorsese movies because mm-hmm. they're they're mostly just about stupid straight guys, and I, I can't have them. I don't have time for them. Uh, even if they're just, cute, Brian. Even if they're cute. Even if they're cute. Like, <laughs> like it, it I, I fortunately have a mechanism in my brain that prevents me from feeling attraction to things that aren't attracted to me. Okay. Okay. Which is like, okay. I, like I don't get gay guys who want to seduce straight guys. I don't get. Yeah, any I don't get it either. Yeah. I don't get. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 if I want somebody to want to fuck me, not to like <laughs> trick them. Into, like there's no. There's no okay. So, okay. So, uh, oh my god. Wanna, I don't want to hold you up. I know yeah, you're I know a you person. We know you got a lot of shit going on. Please, <laughs> Do you have that pulled up, what I sent you yesterday, that email? Uh, yes, I do. Can you grab that? So let yeah. me practice this for everybody. So um, first of all, thank you so much, Brian. This is hella awesome. This was great. Love, thank you. We love having you on the show. I told you we're just silly. We're just all ourselves. And we're all just fanboys and girls, <laughs> you know, doing what we do. So, you know, this we made our show successful. We just have a ball, you know, just being ourselves. Um, um, but I'm definitely going to connect you with Lisa so that you can yes. definitely have her on there. Um, if you decide you want to talk to Chris about it, too, he just has an interesting sp- perspective from a cinephile's perspective. It might be interesting. Absolutely. Uh, like, it would be great to talk to everybody, honestly, okay. because I think that's the, the the thing that's very exciting about this project as we dig deeper into, you know, Queer for Fear is that it is more inclusive than anybody realized that like there's there's ways to for everybody who doesn't feel like they belong they belong in in this film and you know i think there's there's a wonderful community in the queer community but as as we know there's also you know we are we are not beyond reproach and there are some we need to look at ourselves as as members of the queer community and communicate with people who aren't in the community and we can't go tribal. Exactly. Exactly. So 
we all have a friend named Pilar Alessandris. He's one of the biggest, like, you know, you know Pilar. So Pilar, um, we used to have, we had a friend of ours who, before Chris came on and started being our regular co-host, we had another friend um, named Kevin Killebrew, who was an, also, he was another, you know, queer, um, super smart. He was more into like animation and cartoons and he did voiceover. He's the most amazing voice. And he used to work with Pilar a lot. So he passed away like days after my wedding, like five years ago. Yeah. And yeah. Um, just like out the blue, we had no yeah, idea. We all came out to the, the wedding and like literally yeah. like I feel like a few weeks later he had passed, you know. Yes. Yeah, so Pilar wanted to do like a scholarship in his name. She wanted to find another black person of color to do a scholarship in his name and let them like work with her for a year and learn all of her, you know, abilities. So she found this, 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 this kid who she thought reminded her of Kevin and gave him the scholarship in in Kevin's name. So she referred him to me and um, I referred him to a friend of mine who's doing this thing with a bunch of young writers and they love him. And so it looks like he's going to get this, this job. And also, um, so he sent me a letter saying he sat and listened to the podcast and heard Kevin. And Lisa, so I read it and sent it to Lisa, and we both were crying when we read it. So I hope you don't mind. I thought it would be really nice to read it. I thought, you know, do you mind, Lisa? Sure. I'm going to go ahead and do it now. Are you ready? All right. So uh, uh, you want to give the person's name again? Same as Alex, right? Yeah. He goes to trucks, text or something. Yeah, Alex. So this is from Alex. So, and I, here we go. So Hilliard, I went all the way back into the rant room vault and blew the dust off the Ventures recording title, Kevin Killerview, writing, voiceover, animation creator. And I'm trying to catch my damn breath. I'm only at the 20 minute mark and I'm in absolute awe with the flow, fluidity, and rapport of your podcast. It is so naturally entertaining while informally. Literally the perfect combo for my, co- my podcast taste buds. Okay, enough gushing over the show. The main reason I'm reaching out is because there was a moment when Kevin was speaking that caused me to yell, Okay, Kevin, I see you. As if the man was sitting at my desk with me, which startled my wife, by the way. Who is Kevin, she asked. LOL. Of all the rich and juicy insider film tea Kevin was spilling throughout the entire episode, he had the nerve to bring up Rockadoodle, the singing rooster who would save the world by making the sun rise and fall. And I almost fell out of my chair. Hilliard, my inner child started breakdancing and jumping for joy. I used to watch that movie as a kid every Saturday morning. I'm talking big bowl of Tutti Fruities because my parents were too cheap to buy the real deal Fruit Loops. Middle of the floor, crisscross applesauce style, 8.30 a.m. sharp, glued to the TV watching that movie. The odd thing was I was just trying to recall the name of the movie in recent conversation and couldn't, couldn't name it and couldn't name it to save my life. So he brought that up and it seriously made my day. As the podcast continued, I laughed with your guys, felt embraced by the genuine love and respect amongst your casters, and grew a sincere pain in my heart once it dawned on me that this man is no longer sharing his energy on the earth. If I was able to feel his energy via podcast, I can only imagine how much more love and joy he brought to people in real life. During one of my earliest conversations with Pilar, she said that I reminded her of Kevin, which is why she eventually invited me to be the first recipient of his scholarship. After hearing this man on your podcast, I have never been more appreciative of the compliment. So as I thank Pilar, I owe you in the podcast a thank you as well, because now we all have this wonderful collection of Kevin memories recorded. 
I know that I will continue to be blessed, encouraged, and inspired by your captured audio archives of Kevin. And I feel that I can speak for many more who say the same. On that note, I truly hope you are safe and making the best of this COVID mess. I pray good health over you and your loved ones. And make sure you remind the important people in your life of their place in your heart. Everybody can use those type of information in this current climate. P.S. Give me one movie or pilot I should be watching right now, new or old or just something you deem good, and I'll check it out. I look forward to hearing from you, Alex. Wow. And that's it. That was beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm out here out again just saying <laughs> that was beautiful. Well, let's, let's just start with this. So what was, he, what was his last question? Give me one pilot of what? Yes. Pilot or a movie you should watch. Yes. Give me one movie or pilot I should be watching right now, Nora old, just something you deem good, and I'll check it out. So get one from you, Hilliard, and also Brian. And if you have one, also Chris. Of course I have a movie suggestion. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. I'll, I'm, I'll start with I'm you. Just, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> okay. You know what? There's a movie I'm going to recommend. I just got the Criterion Blu-ray on this. It's a Paul Schrader movie. It's called Mishima. Uh, and it's yeah. a, a Mishima, A Life in Four Acts. It's about the the Japanese uh, playwright, author, militant. Um, you know, he wrote this really fascinating uh, uh, tetralogy of books. Uh, it's an interesting movie. It's told in kind of like four chapters, kind of like like vignettes kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a very, it's a very unique film. Um, there's not many films like it at all, at, particularly as a biography. Um, I, and I like things like that because it's such a, it's a, it's not a typical, uh, it's, 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 it's not a typical narrative in terms of what we see in movies. And I just, mm-hmm. it's a fascinating film to watch. What about you, uh, Brian? Give me something. Oh gosh. Um, it's, it's going to be so generic. Uh, but I, I, I feel like the movie Amelie is an interesting solve for oh, modern times. If you haven't seen it, it's so it's, sexy. It's yeah. sexy and it's about kindness and it's about mm-hmm. finding your role as uh, a member of society that can help in unexpected ways and it's a fairy tale it's a romantic fairy tale but it really is about a woman struggling with her own sort of isolation and depression and realizing that the tools to overcome that are about generosity of spirit and helping helping people around you Mm -hmm. lisa Uh, oh i swear to god are you are we like are we grafted off the starring people, <laughs> Brian? Because Brian, I saw, I, I can't, God, Amelie, when they come out, it's like, I want to say 2000, 2001. Like, I own that DVD. Like, oh, uh, my God. Every time, I, every time I see that movie, it makes me cry. Because it's like, I, I don't know. It just, it, it just makes you just think, like you said, it's about being kind and also generosity of spirit outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. Not only does it help other people, but it can also lift you out of your own darkness and, and kind of connects you back to your humanity and, and the world. And I think, especially right now, going through this pandemic, I think Amelie might be a really, yeah, that's, if, that's if a you really good choice. It, you see it it's beautiful. Time. It's got that great score by the Gotan Project. Mm-hmm. It's fucking, <laughs> it's fucking, 
Yeah, I love that movie. Uh, she helps the blind man across the street and describes, you know, smells and uh, sensations cinematically. So he's she's describing it for him and describing it for the audience and just the kind of the reminder to be conscious in moments is right. I think it's it, it never hurts to be reminded of that. Mm. Okay, Aww. you guys are gonna think mine is really corny. No, there's no such thing as corny. Well, I'm gonna give you guys a movie and I'm gonna give you guys a TV show. Okay. As a movie, I think everybody should watch if they haven't seen you should at least watch it once a year to remind you and I always say this, it reminds me um, somebody posted, Michelle Amore, my, co- my co-chair on the Black Community at the Writers Guild, mm-hmm. posted a thing saying, give me four words you tell yourself when you were like, I don't know, a teenager or whatever. And I wrote, mm-hmm. you will find love. And when I think about this movie, I almost get to what I think about. That's what I think about. And it's love actually. Oh, and love actually. It's just, I watch it and every person there is dying for love. Everyone. And they Aww. all get it. In Aww. their own way, corny or not, you know, like the, of course, you know, it's got, it's got heterosexual thing. It's got, it's got every element. It's got erotic stuff. It's got, it's got rich and poor. It just has all the elements in it's got there. Interracial stuff in it. Interracial. I mean, yeah. it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. It's, got, it's got children falling in love. It's got older people falling in love. I mean, everything in there for me. So I watch it. I've seen it 20 times maybe. And I still get teary eyed. Every time, mm-hmm. a different moment. Mm-hmm. And mainly, it's like when um, was it Bill Nye when he does the uh, when he tells his thing that he that he he's actually loves his manager. I hear it every time I watch it, and I boo fucking who. It's just so Aww. beautiful to me because Aww. you we all know there's so many rock stars who probably are queer but can never say it. And even mm. though it wasn't a physical love between them, it was a different type of love, which actually elevated. Had they went to bed with each other, it would have totally messed it up to me. You know, mm. they needed, it was almost like Moonlight, where they never slept with each other, but mm. made, made your mind go, well, where did they go? Right. So anyway, I, that's, that, that would be my movie for the movie. The other one would be a TV series Outside of everything Brian Fuller has done, by the way, uh, <laughs> please read Hannibal. And I'm somebody, we all are somebody, Brian. We tell people to don't only watch it, read the fucking scripts. Okay? And read the book that, and read the yeah. companion book that talks about the making, you know, that the making of it and how that came out. That's a great companion piece to it. Um, but mine would be um, a strange one. I tend to think dark. Um, it's Underground, the pilot. Right. And the reason is... It's one of those pilots. It's um, it's very Lindelof in a sense where he talks to you when he writes, you know. And 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 I always encourage writers, specifically emerging writers, you have to learn to find that voice for yourself. Fuck all the rules that they say. Well, you can't say we seen. You can't do this. Fuck all of that. Right, right. Find your voice because all the ones who say you can't, they all do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so I'm saying, look, when you read a script like that, you just see the prose and how it's written and the richness and how the texture of the transitions move from one to the other, the way that they use verbs and adjectives that make you go, holy shit, mm. I'm not thinking good enough. I'm not, I'm not even on this level. Like, I have to turn my shit up. That's how you get inspired. That's how you want to be better. 
You know what I mean? And so, so that's, that would be one that I would say, re- watch the show, but you don't just watch, read. Yeah, right, right. and, and read for, sure. for sure. For sure. For sure. For me, you bring something interesting because okay. there's there's uh, if if you're if you're a writer, one of the things that you should do when you're watching shows that you love is turn on the closed captions exactly. so you can see the what yeah. di- like you can demystify the mm-hmm. dialogue because sometimes through the elevation of a great performance, it just seems beyond us or it's like I would never think of those words in that order. Right. And, this emotional context. But when you put the closed captions on, like watching Succession, which Mm -hmm. is written like a comedy, but performed like a Shakespearean drama, Mm -hmm. it it actually helps you just see the words and give them the power that they deserve. And also kind of take away some of the mystique and make them accessible to you that they're not beyond your reach. You can do that too. Mm -hmm. Right. For sure. For sure. Uh, For me, for me, it would probably be um, you know that now that you mentioned Brian Amelie, a, a movie that came out a couple years later that had that kind of that sweetness it, that kind of reminded me of that, even though it's a totally different story, and even though this person is problematic, <laughs> I love that I love this film anyway. <laughs> and I'm going to say there's two of them. There is uh, Angel A that came out in 2005, which was Luke Besson. Mm-hmm. And I love it because it's black and white. It has all those kind of romantic things, but there's like a great scene in there where this character who's like a con artist who thinks he's like this ugly, terrible person, but there's one moment where the character, which is an angel that comes down to help this guy, she has him look in the mirror and and lets him see how beautiful he really is. Oh, it's such a wonderful... And that always gets me... It it gets me every time. So if you want to see something like that. And also, um, Wim Wenders, Wings of Desire... How was that? And that actor was from Amelie. Yes. Oh, right. Okay. He was yes, yes. So you know that that connection to it always made it really sweet. Um, and of course, like I said, Wings of Desire by Wim Wenders that came out in 1987. Because mm-hmm. I don't know, I like angel films. I like the idea, especially dealing with the pandemic in terms of our humanity and seeing an angel desire to be a human. I think it's a nice reminder of me not to be so jaded and so upset with a lot of the behavior that humans are displaying right now with this pandemic, you know, not having empathy, being selfish. So I think I kind of need those type of films to kind of lift me up and remind me that there's still good people in the world. And yeah. for a TV series, I've been pushing this all the time. Netflix should pay me for this. <laughs> it's, um, and you guys have heard me say it. It's, um, it's the, um, oh, is it Belgium? I think it's Belgium. Into the Night, which is based on the book, but it's it's only six episodes. They're only about 40 minutes long on Netflix. And basically, premise is um, a guy who barges his way onto an airplane, and, and you think it's a, a typical, like, terrorist hijacking. And basically, what's happening is trying to survive because apparently when sunlight arrives... It's killing everybody and no one knows why. So basically he has to get on this plane, force the pilot to keep flying into darkness all over the globe. So it's kind of like a combination yeah, of Stephen King's. It's, it's, yeah. it's almost like the, the premise of um, Langoliers. the Langoliers yeah. where you have to like, and then, and then of course the pilot is injured. So they're on the plane going, is there anybody else on the plane who can fly it? And of course, <laughs> conveniently they have a woman who can. And it's just amazing because it's a ticking clock. 
You don't know what's happening. I'm disappointed because there's only one season. And it, you know a series is good, bitch, when it makes me go buy the book. I went to Kindle <laughs> and got the book. It's like let the right one in, one of my favorite vampire oh. movies. Like when the movie's that good, bitch, I'm going to buy the book and see what it is. But I recommend <laughs> Into the Night in terms of just great characters. It's, it's a bunch of characters. And the way they get in and out gets you caught up in the story so fast. And at the end of each episode, it's almost like a cliffhanger and you're just so ready for the next. And it's so good. And for those of you who don't like foreign films, who don't like to read, Netflix has conveniently dubbed it. <sighs> so you can just have it in English. It should be you need to have it in English. For me. You need you to know? learn to read those but They give you options. They give you <laughs> options. But yeah, it's the night. It's the night. Angel A and um, Wings of Desire. Awesome. All right, on that note, let's let Brian go because I know let's he's free you guys. <laughs> well, hopefully, I'll so be much, talking bro. to all of you again yeah, soon. Yeah. Prayer for fear. Yes. I'll see, yes. see you guys on email. And, when and, we're and Brian, like I said, if you ever do that Clive Barker adaptation, remember, I'm very good. Like, my acting skills is pretty much they went that way. So, <laughs> if you need me to, to do that, like I said, a good Chablis, a nice little sandwich, some croissants. Uh, if you need a production assistant to tell people, bitch, Brian did not say for you to go stand over there. This is the golden <laughs> hour. Bitch, what are you doing? It's the golden hour. Go stand. If you need someone like that, I am more than willing to do that for you as your personal assistant. See you Listen. Listen. And if you need me to be that lynched up there, like, yes, this is for Clive Barker, bitches. This is what's happening. It is going down. It is happening. I will do that for you, sir. <laughs> I will keep you abreast. <laughs> well, maybe, Brian, when you talk to Lisa and Chris offline, you could tell them about that project you were telling me about. You have to say it online now. But, you know, you, you know the one with Tarana Reed. You had a read for you? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She would love that, for sure. Yeah, Tarana awesome. Reed's my girl. Oh, yeah that, like, yeah, that would be great. Awesome. Interesting. All right. So, Brian, where can people find you? Are you on Instagram or Twitter or anything or Facebook? I'm, on, I'm at Brian Fuller on Twitter, and I'm, I'm not on Twitter a lot. I'm more on Instagram, and it's just Brian Fuller Graham. Okay. Because some asshole took Brian Fuller before I could get to it. <laughs> they didn't know who you are. They didn't know. <laughs> they did where not you, know. Where are you at, Chris? I am at uh, Unauthorized CBD on Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. Lisa, Lisa, Colt, Jam. Uh, you know, I'm that Dorothy Parker. So, you know, it's what fresh hell is this on Twitter? And it's yeah. what fresh hell and it's what fresh hell is this on IG? Even though I tell you, I don't post a lot on IG, but I go to IG to look at other people's stuff. So if you follow <laughs> me, I'll follow you back. But I'll just like look at your stuff. But I'm pretty much more active on Twitter because it's, you know, for my ADHD, it's like easy 140 characters mm -hmm. in, out. I'm done. I'm good. So what exactly. fresh hell is this? And I'm your host, Hilliard Guest. You guys can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, at Hilliard Guest. You guys can follow the show, Screenwriters RR, on Twitter. <clears throat> Any questions, screenwritersrantroom at gmail.com. Please go on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, whatever you listen to. We are everywhere, all around the globe. Um, you can find us for sure. Also, what else, Chris? You can, um, and if you go to our, um, our website, that is uh, screenwritersrr.com. Then you can support us uh, via Patreon. There will be a fantastic show notes uh, section, you know, like 
for this episode because I have like three pages of notes. I saw you right in there. You <laughs> 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 got homework. Uh, yeah, a, a, a lot of references of books to read and shit to see. So check yeah. that out. You know, uh, support the show with the Patreon. You can buy T-shirts on the website. Uh, just go to the store. You buy stuff, and it'll and it'll come quick. Hopefully, it'll come quickly, depending on what you order. Um, certain <laughs> T-shirts are out of stock, but uh, um, yeah. But just go to screenwritersrr.com, and you can support the show Patreon, or you can go to, to anchor.com and uh, type in screeners uh, rant room, and you can support us directly that way. Um, sure. And that's it. Oh, before I forget, Hilliard, uh, uh, shout out and condolences to the families of John Saxon and Wilford Brimley. Uh, those are two gentlemen who my childhood, it's like, I feel like all of my uncles are leaving the planet right now. For the last few weeks, it seems like all the great ones are leaving. But within the last weeks, I was kind of down because, you know, John Saxon has been in every iconic childhood, adulthood, horror, sci-fi, TV shows. Like, I feel like he's like that uncle. And the same with Wilford Brimley. Like, I don't think that man has ever, I don't think Wilford has ever been young at all i think he was just born <laughs> he was everybody a husk. He, yeah he was just born everybody's everybody's favorite grandpa like from birth and i feel like he was in my all-time favorite horror movie the thing he was in cocoon yes. the firm like he's been in so both of those men have been in so many iconic films that had such an impact on my life as just a person who loves speculative things anyway um film um helping me navigate things, especially with a lot of the horror stuff, how to navigate as a child horrific things that happen in real life and how to possibly survive them. So I just want to give a condolence to their family and all the fans who feel the same way I do about those two gentlemen who are just icons, you know? Indeed. That's what's up. Cool. So a uh, lot of good shit going on. As you see, look forward in the future, this uh, Queer for Fear film that Brian is going to be coming out with. Hopefully we'll all be in that. Um, we all might get like two seconds on the screen, but you know how they do the brothers. Um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, we look forward to that. So thank you again, Brian. This was awesome. We got to do it again down the line. Yes, Hopefully please. next time we get you here, we'll be here in, in the office. Even though this was cool, Brian, it's so much funnier and the energy when we're all in the room, because then yeah. we can really like feel your energy and it's just it's just a different experience but this is great too so I won't I, 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 I won't yeah, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah we had a ball with you Brian so everybody joining me you guys know how we do it on the rant room on the show we keep it real we keep it opinionated we keep it what everybody it, it is, is what it is, is. What it is. <laughs> thanks Brian thanks Lisa Chris, all right have a good one okay, all right, all right. have a good one you guys I'ma say what I feel And I promise to keep it real Welcome to the Red Room Well, you gotta be a rider till your fears are diminishing, the doubts are behind ya. It's hard to grind and the business got me stressed in the rent room. We let that shit up off our chest. You know the street nerds got no time for no caca. Sass in class, yes, they used to pull a kaja. Never have to guess when you're listening to Hilliard. He gon' bring more game than a shark playing billiards. It's all about the crap of screenwriting. It's exciting when you turn an outline into something enlightening. Your pen and words are like bullets in a gun. Write what you feel, say what you want. Welcome to the Red Room.